0: Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the UC Davis sweetheart murders and how the case was finally solved. But first, your true crime headlines. A Flint, Michigan man is facing murder charges for killing and dismembering his father. 27-year-old Aaron Scott Reeves II was arraigned last week with disinterment and mutilation of a dead body for the death of his father, 50-year-old Aaron Scott Reeves. Reeves' dismembered body was found in a dumpster behind a gardening supply store. His body had been cut into pieces and placed in several garbage bags, which were discovered by neighborhood residents looking through the dumpster for valuables. Police were called to the scene and also found two circular saws in the dumpster that matched packaging found at the Reeves' home. Reeves II was arrested and booked into the Genesee County Jail on no bond he will return to court for a probable cause hearing late next month. A New Jersey couple is facing child endangerment charges for hosting a bat mitzvah at their home despite a statewide emergency order forbidding large gatherings of people. Police were called to the Lakewood home of the Silvers who had assembled between 40 and 50 people at their home for the party. Officers ordered the crowd to disperse and charged the couple with one count of child endangerment for each of their five children, and one charge of violating a rule or regulation adopted by the governor. The couple will have to appear in court at a date that is yet to be determined, according to the Ocean County Prosecutor's Office. New Jersey's Governor Phil Murphy took to Twitter after learning of the incident. He tweeted, Can't believe I have to say this at all, let alone for the second time. But here we are. No Corona parties, they're illegal, dangerous, and stupid. We will crush your party. You will pay a big fine. And we will name and shame you until everyone gets this message into their heads." Ocean County Prosecutor Bradley Billheimer echoed the governor's sentiment in a statement released to the press. He told residents, "'My office will prosecute any individual who defies or breaks the law, state of emergency or otherwise. Everyone must respect and follow the law. New Jersey is one of the states that has been the hardest hit by the coronavirus, second only to neighboring New York in confirmed cases. It is one of at least 30 states that have issued some sort of stay-at-home order for its citizens in an effort to slow the spread of the virus. A 51-year-old Washington state man was arrested after a bizarre high-speed chase with police. Troopers noticed the 1996 Buick driving erratically and attempted to pull over the driver. He fled, driving at speeds up to 100 miles per hour and speeding down a popular bike trail as he attempted to evade police. Eventually, police laid down spike strips which enabled them to finally stop the vehicle and arrest the driver. During his arrest, he told officers that he was trying to teach his dog how to drive. The man was taken into custody and charged with reckless endangerment, hit and run, driving under the influence and felony eluding. His bond was set at $8,500. His dog, described by troopers as a very sweet girl, was taken to a local animal shelter. Those were your true crime headlines. Next, how a journalist's hunch helped bring the killer of two slain teenagers to justice. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of the UC Davis sweetheart murders. It was a December morning in 1980 when Andrea Rosenstein sensed that something was wrong. Andrea had grown accustomed to leaving a bathroom light on for her younger sister and roommate, Sabrina, so she could find her way around when she returned home at night sabrina always turned it off before turning in but that morning the light remained on along with the whir of the bathroom fan it ignited sabrina hadn't come home andrea called her family and sabrina's boyfriend john riggins the day before the pair had worked as ushers at a holiday play and planned to attend a surprise birthday party for andrea that night Now, neither of them were anywhere to be found. Alarmingly, they hadn't shown up at the party either. Both 18 years old and about to start college at UC Davis, Sabrina and John had started dating the previous summer. Sabrina loved the beach, swimming, and horses. John was popular, an athlete, and the son of a well-known physician. Both seemed to enjoy life fully, even more so when they were together until the night they vanished. At the time, the town was covered in thick haze. The fog would sock in Davis for days sometimes, but that night was really, really bad, Andrea told CBS News, and I thought maybe the van went off the road and they're in the field somewhere hurt and we have to find them. Because of missing person laws, authorities insisted on waiting 24 hours before launching an official search. Besides, they offered... Sabrina and John had probably eloped. Andrea was furious about this, demanding that running off for any reason would be completely out of character for the couple. They were responsible. They would have told someone. Unwilling to wait any amount of time, family and friends organized their own search that morning. The next day, police joined the efforts and found the van the pair had been driving, abandoned, a good 20 miles from Davis. Someone had torn through the large vehicle, rummaging around and opening the wrapped gifts intended for Andrea. Hours later, hidden in a nearby wooden ravine, they discovered the bodies of John and Sabrina. Detective Ray Biondi, who had since retired, said it looked as though both victims had been thrown in the ditch and discarded as used garbage. Their throats had been slashed and their heads were wrapped in duct tape. Sabrina's body showed signs of sexual assault. We were looking at somebody who came prepared to commit these murders and was not afraid to get up close and personal and kill the victims, Biondi told reporters, had absolutely no regard for other human lives. At the time, she thought the case would be solved within weeks. She and her team tagged the victim's clothing and a blanket found in the van, the birthday present for Andrea, to be tested for bodily fluids and DNA. Biondi believed the killer laid in wait, While the couple left sabrina's apartment and headed for andrea's party they may have been abducted outside the complex given the foggy air and absence of passers-by flooded with phone calls and tips police put together a composite sketch hoping to catch the assailant before he attacked again they also gave andrea reasons to fear for her own life amid her shock and grief you live in the same apartment they told her and so it's possible you were targeted instead of her I cannot express how horrifying it would be to me that it would have been my fault, Andrea told reporters, that I would have rather died than have her die at any time. Investigators hoped to gain valuable information from the phone calls that continued to flood in or from the hundreds of unidentified fingerprints found in the van, but no such luck. One by one, each potential clue ended up fruitless. Days turned into weeks, and weeks became years. Six years passed, with no answers, and no one to pay the price for these horrific crimes. Then finally, a tip led police to look into a similar double murder that had taken place around the same time as the sweetheart murders. Someone had killed another couple in Sacramento County, just one month before Sabrina and John were slain. There were other commonalities, too. Both victims were young, attractive college students, both were abducted from public places, and both killed execution style, before their bodies were dumped. Police on the earlier case had arrested a suspect, Gerald Gallego, but the violent sexual predator had an alibi. On the night of Sabrina and John's murders, he was already behind bars. Even so, that wasn't enough for police to write off any connection. Eventually, they concluded that it may have been a copycat case, Sociological research shows that factors like media sensationalism of cases, too strong of a push to interview loved ones after crimes, and excess attention given to the killer or suspect's name fuel these crimes intended to mimic another. In this case, police believed the dual murder was staged to clear Gallego of any blame. Who might do such a thing? The suspect's brother, they asserted, David Hunt, who had many felony convictions including one for kidnapping. They believed Hunt's wife, Sue Ellen, and his longtime associate, Richard Thompson, were responsible, too. A tragic, unfathomable team effort. So in November of 1989, a full nine years after John and Sabrina were killed, police arrested the so-called Hunt group. The night before the three went on trial in 1992, however, DNA test results failed to match any of them. And there was no physical evidence linking them to the crimes. The prosecution's entire case rested in the hope that a man named Doug Laner would turn on the others. They wanted me to testify that somebody in the group told me about these killings. That's what they wanted, Laner told NBC, and he admitted that at the time of the murders, he was a thief, supporting an addiction. He would have stolen just about anything to sell for drug money. But he did not, he swore, commit murder or know anything about these two. In the end, the case against the Hunt Group fell apart. For a while, the sweetheart murder case went cold yet again. Until finally, in 2012, the case made it back to a courtroom. This time, someone would be convicted. This might never have happened without journalist Joel Davis, who wrote a book about the case entitled Justice Waits, The UC Davis Sweetheart Murders. He's not an attorney or police officer and wasn't directly involved with the case, but he went to high school with John Riggins and felt the effects of the atrocity ripple through his hometown. According to SF Gate, he couldn't shake the gruesomeness of the killings and spent five years immersed in the case. Seven years had passed since the Hunt Group trial, and the case lingered cold when Davis moved back to his hometown, armed with a graduate degree in journalism and 15 years of newspaper experience. I left Davis, but this case never left me, he said, adding, that's kind of a corny line, but it's true. He had to pull his manuscript back twice from Callister Press for updates when new details surfaced. He also maintained a website of weekly related stories, justiceweights.com. As I said in the foreword, you're not here to read about me, Davis told reporter Sam Whiting of the book. I didn't intend that, but it became necessary. These kids were so good, it was puppy love. Perfect model kids. Good athletes, good students. From all indications, they hadn't even had sex yet. Two years later, his book was complete, but he couldn't ignore his gut feeling that DNA evidence held the key to justice in this case. He started pressuring Sacramento County prosecutor Anne-Marie Schubert, who had been working on cold cases thanks to a new grant. I basically set her up, Davis said. Once I got her to look at it, she got fascinated. Schubert opted to retest the DNA collected from the blanket found in the van. And there it was. A connection. The state crime lab linked the DNA sample to a suspect who was already in prison, a man named Richard Hirschfield. Accused of sexually assaulting children and women, he had been convicted of rape in California in 1975. Police said the man had friends who lived near Sabrina. They believed he abducted the couple because he found Sabrina pretty. When they questioned his brother, Joseph, he visibly trembled. Less than 24 hours later, Joseph was found in his car, Having died by suicide. He left a note which read, I have been living with this horror for 20 years. Richard did not commit those murders, but I was there. I didn't kill anyone, but my DNA is still there. Joseph's DNA was never found in the van, but his brother was arrested and charged with the double murder. In preparation for the trial, investigators combed through 200,000 pages of discovery. In his defense, Hirschfeld's attorneys claimed that his DNA was on the blanket because he was a drifter at the time and had slept in the van. The jury, who didn't buy that, found him guilty. A second hearing was scheduled to determine whether the convicted killer would receive the death penalty. There, family members of Sabrina and John spoke. Visualizing the way he died, John's father, Dr. Richard Wiggins, started according to court records, As he shared details of the murders, his voice broke up, sadness overwhelming him. I wasn't there, and there was nothing I could do, so I had failed in my biggest duty to him. It took the jury only two hours to decide to sentence the man with capital punishment. Judge Michael Sweet took a moment to address the family. You have endured so much, he said. The tortured history of this case must have taken away any hope you had that the personal responsible for these acts would be discovered and held to answer. My sincere and deep-felt apologies for the tragedies you have suffered. John's dad shared this message. We will never know the gifts that John and Sabrina would have given society, but we do know Hirschfield's contribution, humiliation, pain, and death. It took 32 years to bring this killer to justice. Sabrina's parents, Kim and George, said they were starting to believe they wouldn't live to see the day it finally happened. It's a scab on your heart, and it just keeps getting pulled off, and you bleed again, Kim told 48 Hours. And you just don't know how much you can keep going. Sabrina's sister, Andrea, spoke with CBS correspondent Troy Roberts of the added pain of losing someone to murder, made worse when it goes unsolved for so long. She continues to keep her little sister's memory alive, remembering Sabrina as someone who loved kids and medicine and wanted to be a physical therapist. She was such a good person and so innocent and so sweet and so wonderful, she said, adding that Sabrina wanted a large family. Andrea named her first child after her sister, then adopted three more. "'I'm having the family that she didn't get to have,' she said. "'She's kept the horses Sabrina loved in her life, too. "'She's still with us,' she went on. "'I feel like her spirit is still with us.'" On a breezy, sunny spring day, some 100 friends and loved ones of Sabrina and John gathered at Redwood Park for the dedication of the Warm Remembrance Family Play Area, A tribute to the couple. Attendees planted four sycamore trees. John's father reminisced about John and Sabrina's last summer, describing it as one filled with budding romance. The pair will always be linked, he said, and the park would help shift their legacy from tragedy to something more positive, something much more like the teens who were just coming into their own and who lived the short lives they had so fully. A memorial site for John and Sabrina aptly features this line from Gates of Prayer. So long as we live, they too shall live and love, for they are a part of us as we remember them. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.